0: This is a download from BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. Uh, this morning for breakfast, I had a, an omelette with mushrooms and uh, and uh, onion and chili, and then some fruits and some uh, grilled salmon. Perfect. Sounds <laughs> it, 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 like it an ideal perfect. hotel yeah, breakfast. It was a very nice hotel breakfast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampike Pagan. In early November, I was in Singapore for the 2017 edition of the SWF, that's the Singapore Writers Festival, where I managed to catch up with a bunch of really interesting authors, thinkers and creators. One of those people was Benjamin Dix. He is the founding director of Positives, Negatives, which produces comics, animation and podcasts, adapting academic research into accessible mediums for advocacy and educational tools.
0: Uh, Hello, my name is Dr. Benjamin Dix. I'm anthropologist at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University London, where I run a company called Positive Negatives, which produces ethnographic comic books, and a charity called Why Comics, which disseminates those comic books to schools around the world.
1: So Ben, I've spent an inordinate amount of time on your website, and I have to say, first of all, I love that you call them comics. Not graphic art or sequential art or any of that stuff, uh, which is which is fantastic. But tell me why why comics? I mean, I know I know why comics because I've spent most of my adult life learning everything I know through comics. But tell me why comics?
0: Um, so the story really goes back to my time working for the United Nations in Sri Lanka. Um, and in 2008, when the, the war was, was kind of at its height, uh, I was the liaison officer between the Tamil Tigers and the UN in the north area called Vanni. And I spent a lot of time sitting in a bunker under air attack and artillery attack. And one day I read a graphic novel called Mouse, which is about the Holocaust. And I had no background in comics at all. I had read, you know, some Calvin and Hobbes and Beano um, in my childhood, but I had never read any of these political graphic novels. And I was absolutely amazed by and impressed by how you could get such a complex topic of the Holocaust into sequential art. Um, And I remember coming out of the bunker that day and kind of looking up at the sky at the Sri Lankan Air Force flying around at half a million uh, internally displaced Tamils moving around, us, the UN, the Tamil Tiger rebels, and thinking, you know, there's a graphic novel here. There's a a story to be told. I was kind of busy at that time in the middle of the conflict. I didn't have time to start producing a a graphic novel. So I um, parked the idea. I left Sri Lanka completely... Professionally and personally destroyed. I was very upset, angry, and kind of emotionally heartbroken at what at the failings of the UN in Sri Lanka. Um, and returned to England and started to work on what I thought was a comic, which has then became. A PhD, which then became my company, <laughs> Positive Negatives, which then became a, a, an anthropologist. And now that's what I do. And I, I write these comics, animations um, about human stories.
1: And you know what? All of the best comics, whether fiction or nonfiction, tend to come by way of trauma. Even Superman, right? I mean, the story goes that, I can't remember if it was Siegel or Schuster, later it was discovered that it was the trauma of losing his own dad that kind of gave birth to this idea of Superman. And I remember reading in an interview, you saying that in leaving, you were one of the last people to leave and get evacuated in 2008, and you were suffering from some real anxiety and trauma.
0: Yeah, I, I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder for a couple of years afterwards. I had, you know, I had survivor's guilt that uh, uh, over 30 of my UN staff died in that conflict. Uh, over 100,000 civilians were killed in that conflict. And I was part of the mechanism of the United Nations that failed them. You know, I'd been there for four years. I arrived a day after the tsunami and evacuating from there was the most painful, devastating experience I'll hopefully ever have to go through. Um, It was a complete sense of professional failure at the failure of the UN, the United Nations, the Tamil Tigers, the Sri Lankan army. There were, you know, there were no goodies and baddies. It was just failure all around. And then on a personal note, for you, I'm a kind of person who builds friendships sincere genuine friendships with people and i had made wonderful friends in the vany and at their greatest hour of need i hugged them goodbye and drove out of there and that isn't a very traumatic experience to go through so i felt you know when i returned the one thing that i could do was use my you know, really privileged space in the world of of a white British male that people listen to, that the media listen to, that academics listen to, and and use that space to tell their stories. But instead of delivering it as a as a report, as an article, deliver it as something different, inspired by Mouse, as a graphic novel.
1: At which point, how long did it take for you to, I guess? Get past the ptsd and then channel it into something positive through positive negatives how long did that take
0: um it's an ongoing process really i mean i think sri lanka has left a scar on me that will will always be there and it's something that i'll you know i've 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 i've, I've moved on from maybe blaming myself uh, I understand that I was a small pawn in a much bigger game of chess, um, an international game, um, but it's something that really has... It, it, it's a deep trauma that you can channel that negative energy into something positive, hence positive negatives. Um, but what it has done is given me a sense of empathy, a sense of um, drive to to tell people's stories who are suffering, whether you're a refugee trying to flee Syria, whether you're a woman who's been trafficked for purposes of sex or exploitation. Um, It's a space that I really want to use my privilege space to tell their stories. Um, And that's something that I'm happy to do for the rest of my life.
1: And how's that process been? And I ask because... I think there is still a relatively small group of people still who are aware of the genius of Spiegelman and Sacco and Satrapi um, and the impact their work has had, not just on, I guess, changing mindsets, but progressing the dialogue. And how difficult was it for you to convince people that this is, that this is good? It's good, but people still have this warped view that comics aren't high literature, Sure. And yeah, maybe they well, still well, do. Maybe yeah. in Europe they do, right? In uh, Europe they. In, well, the in some countries. In the French. Yeah. In, in the UK they don't.
0: There isn't a culture of comics really. Um, so, really, at the beginning, I, I mean, I started this small project on Sri Lanka, which I thought was going to take two or three months working with this fantastic artist, Lindsay Pollock in North London. This is the Vanny. The Bunny, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought for me this would be, okay, This, there's something, a project I'll do for a couple of months, we'll do a 30-page comic and then I'll move on with my life. And, it's and
1: about 200 pages, right?
0: Now it's about 240 <laughs> pages and it became a PhD, a company, and now I'm sitting here because of that, you know. Um, and... Uh, and so at the beginning, I really was just focusing on the bunny story and then focusing on the methodologies and ethics of producing that book, which became my PhD. Whilst going through the second year of my PhD, I realized talking to old colleagues who still worked for the UN or various NGOs around the world, they were always battling with how to tell their communications for their work, whether it's the earthquake in Haiti, whether it's the um, floods in Pakistan. They needed communications rather than just an official report, which isn't read by anyone these days, right? Not even UN people read them. So... These were old colleagues of mine, and I was able to get them to commission me to to produce these comics and Then I made contacts in the BBC the Guardian, and suddenly these comics were being read by ten hundred thousand people. And my colleagues were like, my, you know, our reports are read by five people. And suddenly we've given it to you, Ben, and we're read by a million people. You know, <laughs> this is great. So that kind of snowballed. And then I got my PhD and I found myself in an academic arena. So suddenly the company Positive Negatives was connected to... The development, humanitarian world, the academic world, and the media world, which meant that we could just propel our work and get further and further commissions. And now the majority of our work actually is with academics who right. struggle to get non-academics to read their work.
1: Well, because it's so inaccessible <laughs> most of the time. Now, the interesting thing about the Vani is uh, that you employ this very, uh, and your an artist and uh, employs a very cinematic style. In, in telling that story, and I think that helps. The one scene, I guess, you know, when he falls asleep at the couch at the end and you know, there is a very cinematic transition to flashing back um, to Sri Lanka, which is very, very cool. But tell me this, and I found this to be true as well, because comics like this aren't necessarily in the mainstream or a lot of people stop reading comics after a certain age, I find that people don't really know how to read comics. They know how to watch a movie. They know how to read a book. But they're not sure because the grammar and style is so different, they either pay attention to the words or pay attention to the pictures and don't do both.
0: Yes, that's true. And and I'm I'm no expert on reading comics. Uh I I often found it and still do find it problematic if there's not a very clear um line of narrative that's running through the page. You know, I work with this one particular artist, Rob Davis, uh, in the UK, who just on the page he draws Six frames, three at the top, three at the bottom, and you read it left to right at the top, left to right at the bottom and it 's just clear whereas other people um, the, the box the panels are going all over the page, and you 're not quite sure where to follow the story, and that can be a bit confusing unless you 're a comic book reader yeah um, what we 're finding is the the younger generation growing up are particularly adept at reading comics there 's something and maybe it's the social media, the smartphones. There's, you know, the the, genera- the younger generations growing up now are reading less and less pages of text like you and I grew up reading. Yeah. And their brains are absorbing small sound bites of text and visual material. And the visual and the text is, is different sides of the brain. So, um, you know, where, whereas my parents find it a little bit difficult to read some of my comics. My young nephew finds it very easy.
1: You mentioned earlier about being a British white male telling these stories. And I wanted to talk to you about the ethics of telling these stories because you then become the medium via which these people who otherwise have no voice use to get their trauma across and out to the world. So that must be a very difficult thing for you to do in removing your own voice.
0: It's a huge responsibility. I don't have a problem with removing my own voice um, because, uh, you know, like, like what we're doing is very different from Joe Sacco, for example, who positions himself oh, in the story. It's a he lot draw- more
1: gonzo. Yeah,
0: he draws himself in the story, and that's his style of telling that story as, as, as he's positioned there. What we do is we tell people stories in the first person. So we go out and we spend a week, a month, a few months with people, really get to understand their stories through lots of immersive interviews, really understanding their environment, where they live in, and not just about the particular moment that we're writing about, whether it's crossing the Mediterranean or, you know, being captured in a, in a, in a place, whatever, but really, who were you as a child? Who is your family? Tell, so I get to understand who you are as a human being. And then we write a script from that and sit, take the script back to them and get them to edit the script and they might say things like you know you've exaggerated this bit a little bit or why did you leave that little story out that's I really that was important, important. Yeah. yeah yeah that's really important to my story so we give them the space to include those bits or edit out others we then find an appropriate artist who most importantly is the right gender if it's a female led story it's a female artist we then try and find an artist from the region so we've just finished an animation on a family leaving Iraq escaping isis we couldn't find an iraqi artist but we found a female libyan artist so at least she is she's muslim she's from the middle east north african region she understands
1: nuance the the
0: nuance and all of this stuff right then we take the storyboards back to the people and say does this look like your story and they might say you know you've drawn mountains in the background this was a completely flat area or something (laughs) like that right yeah so Once we've got all of that approved by the person who owns that story, then we go to the inking, then we finish the product. And so then, in terms of my responsibility, yes, it is about my privilege because I'm the one sitting here in Singapore talking to you, not the refugee. But what I'm presenting to you is as close to their story as we can possibly get.
1: Surely it's like Schrodinger's cat, though, in that Mm. there are some things that you just cannot avoid. I mean, talk to me about those struggles because the the act of you being there, your observation surely that changes the story somehow.
0: Yeah, there there is a there's a there will always be a fictionalization, right? Um you're interviewing me now. If you were to turn this interview into a comic book, the mere act of doing that, there would be a sense of fictionalization. You will have to put a certain flow of narrative through it to make it a readable point from A to B. Um, But by bringing that story back to me, at least I get the point, the moment of saying, you haven't got that bit right, you know? Um,
1: And I suppose that's the key point, right? Taking it back to them.
0: Yeah. And that's the difference of journalism and ethnography. What we do is write ethnographies. where you know, when I get interviewed... By the Guardian, say, the interviewer sits down in front of me, interviews me, and the next time, the only time I see the interview is when it's in print in the paper. And that's, that's correct. I shouldn't have the space to edit and change it, because that's journalism. And if we all did that, politicians would look wonderful, right, <laughs> if they have the ability to change what they said.
1: You should try reading some Malaysian journalism. <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: sure. <laughs> but that's not what we're doing. I'm not there to catch someone out. I'm there to tell the world their story. And so that's a very, very different process.
1: So would one way of looking at it be that you're essentially indulging in an act of translation?
0: Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what came across when I was reading your work on the website Mm -hmm. in that I could tell that you were actively trying to remove your voice and ha- maintain this sense of disconnect and focus on those individuals. And I kept thinking, I mean, the closest analogy I could think of was an act of translation.
0: Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, yeah, it, it, it really, this, the, the only project that I've worked on that I have a voice in is The Bunny. Because I lived there for four years, I was traumatized by it. Okay, I didn't lose any family members, but I lost my friends. And I also lost my home where I'd lived for four years and I loved living in North Sri Lanka. It was one of the most beautiful places I've lived with the most hospitable, kind people that I've lived with. And I feel so upset for the rest of my life of what happened there that I feel I have a legitimate voice to, to add to that conversation. The other projects, I don't. I don't know what it's like to be a Syrian refugee or a Nigerian mother or a, an Eritrean woman crossing Libya. I don't know what that's like. So I use the space that I have to translate their stories into something visual. And 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 I'm comfortable with that.
1: The visual stuff, of course, requires a certain amount of skill in that you have to be able to draw to be able to do it. Uh, but the other thing you guys do are podcasts as well, which is something we do a lot of in the radio station. And I think that as a medium is fantastic because it's accessible, it's easy. All you need is something like what I've got us hooked up to right yeah. now and you're able to tell everyone's stories and i'm thinking is that a platform or a medium in which these people can tell their own stories
0: yeah i mean this is a new uh thing for us that i mean in, i now have a team of uh researchers that work with me um two of which are currently in colombo they've just been in dakar there's another team that are going to harare zimbabwe next month and um we we go around and interview people about these particular topics that we're researching and we use dictaphones to for those interviews so that when we're back in London writing the scripts and stuff, we have all that material to go. So I was thinking, well, if we've got that audio recording, why not make more podcasts out of it because they're also anonymous.
1: And also there's the power of hearing someone's voice. Yes,
0: exactly. So we we're, we're now experimenting with that we we we've made one dramatization podcast of Almaz which was about a uh, an Ethiopian woman in Saudi Arabia that was uh, a domestic maid and had a a terrible experience Um, but now we're looking at making kind of you know on the road kind of podcast this is us researching in the the neighborhoods of Dakar or Colombo or wherever we're, we're working in and seeing how that works we haven't really tried it yet but it's something because it continues to anonymize and that's the really important work piece in our work is that it's not a photo montage. I don't have to put a camera in someone's face and make them feel uncomfortable. Radio, there's still, like comics, there's a very, it's a more subtle... I don't know, it's a gentler way of interviewing.
1: Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for your time and all the best with everything you're doing. Thank you very much. That was Benjamin Dix. He was one of the featured speakers at this year's Singapore Writers Festival. Check out more of his work at positivesnegatives.org. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast.